Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and soon-to-be dad, Ed Daddy Condon. Nope. That's weird. Nope. Definitely not going to be that. We're not going to make that nope. a thing, JD. No, no, no. Oh, gosh. No, we're definitely not going to make that a thing. I was just trying to think of a sort of dad nickname that you could add the dad pants. Nope, that's not something. That's not even something that is. Good Lord. Oh, got a, what, what, you got a suggestion here, Condon? Uh, no. No, I have no suggestions. This this is all terrifying to me. Um, how, how about Dr. Dad? How does that sound? Dr. Dad. <laughs> nope. Any. I'm not going to call you any sort of dad thing. Nope, nothing here is good. Yeah. No, Let, let's let's carry on, shall we? Yeah, let's. But but I really do want to talk for a couple of minutes. You are, as our I think many of our podcasting uh, listeners know, uh, an expectant father, which is to say that your wife is expecting a baby, which is to say that you will soon have a baby uh, in your home. And uh, so, uh, tell us about that. Um, it's fine. <laughs> When's the baby? The baby's due. Uh, the baby's due at the end of September, but you know, first babies tend to come a little bit later. So probably you'll actually have the baby uh, at the beginning of October, like maybe on my birthday. And uh, you know, how are you guys? Are you guys feeling prepared? Are you feeling unprepared? Are you feeling like a, a sense of kind of calm, uh, joyful anticipation? Are you feeling somewhat frenetic? Are you just the the people, and by the people, I mean me, the people want to hear about the baby. I I suspect you're going to be disappointed with the answers. Um, Yeah, I feel about as prepared as one can be. I have, as I've mentioned before, um, assembled the requisite baby furniture, which was a pain, but it's up. And uh, that's nice. I I repainted the room recently, so it's a it's a nice color. Um, what color is it? It's a sort of sunshine yellow. Oh, okay. That that's a good. You you know the the sex of your baby, but if you didn't, or if the doctor's mistaken, that's a nice gender neutral color. Oh uh, yes, it's also just bright and cheerful. Um, All things bright and beautiful, eh? Indeed. Uh, so yeah, I I installed the car seat, which for some reason all of the relevant literature about becoming a father seem to suggest required a, a sort of NASA level understanding <laughs> of engineering, but it was not at all complicated. I, you know, uh, the, the hooks go into the hooky parts in the wedge of the seat and the belt goes through the, th- I mean, it was perfectly straightforward. I don't know why people make such a fuss over this. Well, what you should get used to it is a sort of fatherhood shtick whereby relatively easy things to accomplish are celebrated as if they were, uh, you know, nigh on impossible uh, momentous tasks and probably the car seat uh, installation, which honestly takes three minutes if you, you know, um, can, if you have hands, um, uh, is, is a good example of that and an initiatory right into that. It won't be long before you're doing uh, very, very small things, uh, you know, n- not even changing the diaper, just putting the diaper in the trash and then boasting about it to your wife with them um, in expectation of fervent and enthusiastic praise. This is the way of the father. I see. So I'm I'm already letting the side down by by letting on that the installation of car seats could really be done probably by the children old enough to ride in them if if you gave them proper instruction. Yeah, and that's another thing that you don't that that you haven't yet realized, but you will is like I'm going to install the car seat means um, I believe that I have a, a 20 minute block of 
um, excuse of excused absence, right? And so um, I may only need three to five minutes to install the car seat, but I need the 20 minute block of excused absence. And so I have to kind of perpetuate the myth that the thing takes a while. And if you're, um, uh, you know, if you're uh, popping the balloon on that, I think a lot of fathers, your fellow fathers will be um, rather frustrated and discouraged because sometimes one just needs, you know, the 20 minutes. Right. Okay. I can see how I've made a mistake there. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's an error on my part. Um, I'm going to the grocery store. Now, the grocery store, it, it all depends. Are you getting groceries or are you running somewhere? Either, running to get milk, that's another 20-minute block of, of excused absence. Uh, going for groceries, hey, buddy, you could buy 90 minutes of quiet. And, and again, you can't just say, well, I could breeze through the house and be done in 15. Nobody wants to hear it. Right. No, that makes perfect sense. I'm okay. Now that you're saying this, I'm now blocking out the number of barbecue restaurants and dive bars between my house and the grocery store. And the number is pleasantly high. So uh, th- this could be a useful tactic in the years right. to come. Right, uh, right, right. Exactly. No, yeah. I, I mean, in terms of sort of um, emotional preparedness, I, I think I'm I, I think I'm doing all right. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I and this is probably bad, but. The majority of my anxiety is wrapped around, is wrapped up in the in the logistics of actually having to go to the hospital and have the baby delivered. Um, not in any sense, you know, a feeling of concern or trepidation for my wife or child, both of whom I trust will be just fine. But you know, having to deal with the paperwork and you know, deal with uh, hospital administrative staff with whom I don't have a, a great working relationship um, generally. Uh, you know, things like th- there are some logistics that they don't prepare you for. Like, for example, the all of the relevant people tell you you have to bring a certain amount of equipment and supplies to the hospital for the delivery event. Right. There's supposed to be a bag with stuff for the mother. There's supposed to be another bag for, of stuff for the kid when it arrives. Um, people are telling me to bring things like spare changes of clothes, supplies of food. I mean, I'm definitely bringing a bottle of wine. For you know when it's all over, sure, obviously. sure, but, sure. You know sure. they're telling me to bring you know spare clothes. There seems to be a great emphasis on I need to bring a lot of breath mints and uh, uh, mouthwash because apparently bad breath is a thing during labor. I don't know, um, but I mean it's in like a bouncy ball. That's a thing. Uh, someone told me I needed for to the bring purpose it. of laboring. Yes, and someone told me I need I should bring a bathing suit, and I didn't even ask what the hell that was about. I don't want to know. Huh. Um, but anyway. There's all this stuff. I mean, it's like, you know, I people have gone on safari with less equipment than I'm being advised <laughs> to bring. And I mean, all that's well and good. And if it serves a purpose, it's fine. And I'm perfectly happy to be overprepared. But I don't understand the logistics of what I'm supposed to do. Like when the when the wife is in labor and I drive up to the hospital with a woman in labor. I mean, I've been to this hospital two dozen times now. I cannot in my mind understand how I'm supposed to bring my wife into the hospital and have her properly looked after without leaving the car, which will be immediately towed if I leave it outside of the hospital, and then disgorge the contents of the car and take it with my wife at the same time. And I can't park it because the parking is, you know, at least yeah. a football field away. I mean, this is, those I don't are the know. things that concern I, me. I don't know. My my, my children, you, you know, two of my children are adopted and one was born via C-section. So it, things are a lot more sort of planned and scheduled. I was going to say it's a lot easier, but really I mean for me obviously well, for I mean, my, that's, wife, this, I suspect it's far far less easy um but uh, then I kind of got distracted Ed, because you were talking about unloading the car and I was thinking that often unloading the car can be transformed into an excused absence of 15 to 20 minutes you know you probably oh, I, have time to, to get an ice cream bar so I wouldn't worry too much I would think about a route to and from the car that puts you through the hospital cafeteria for the sake of ice cream bar 
that that may be a thing. I I don't know, but yeah, these are my concerns. Uh, the the sort of impending spiritual reality of fatherhood, I, I'm fine with that. The the sort of event of the child coming home, fine with that. Um, you know, building a routine, looking forward to it, great. My my all of my concerns and anxieties are entirely bound up with dealing with the fact of the hospital, which I hate. And what would assuage your anxiety? I don't think it's possible. I, I've i never had a pause. I mean, part, part of this, I think, is because I have never, thanks God and touch wood, um, I've never had a medical interaction with a hospital for myself. Oh, I see. Um, and so when I've gone in there, it has never been to receive care. Um, oh, no, that's not true. I've, I've been to a hospital once as a patient. Uh, I got, this was a couple of years ago. This was in the, I don't know, twenty. 14-ish, whatever. I had especially bad allergies and I went to a, I went to the doctor to get a, a shot for the allergies. And um, the doctor said, you know, you have to sit here for 15 minutes afterwards because it can affect your blood pressure. Um, and I said, sure. And I sat there and then said, can I go? And they said, yeah. And I went and I had arranged for someone to pick me up because they said you shouldn't drive right afterwards because your blood pressure could drop or whatever. So I got in the car and apparently I then face planted on the dashboard. Oh, my. And I woke up um, a few minutes later, um, to find the fire department leaning in the window, like an actual fireman with the helmet leaning through the window. Was of the this car. an English fireman? No, 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 this was in Washington. Oh, okay. Because an English fireman, a, a lot of them, insofar as I'm aware, I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, a lot of them are named Sam. <laughs> That's okay. Um, yes, fireman Percy. Sam is a character in children's television in Britain. This is true. Anyway, but this fireman was sort of leaning in the window and, um, Apparently, I don't recall this, but according to the person who was driving me and had called the not called nine one one, I guess um, my first words were, "I'm not on fire. I'm not paying for this." And they then <laughs> oh, insisted on oh, taking me to Sam. the um, to the hospital for observation. But apart from that, I've never had a, a personal interaction with a hospital, so it's always been front loaded with, "I'm just there to do the admin and deal with the obtuse and unhelpful person behind the desk who wants you to fill in forms." So, I'm, how long did how long did you need to be observed? A couple hours. Um, they gave me another shot of steroids or something and said, you're going to feel a little drowsy. And I said, no, I'm not going to feel a little drowsy. And then I passed out, apparently. You are the most contrarian person. But actually, the the reason I asked what would assuage your anxiety is because, dear listeners, I am aware of, one thi- uh, of things that would assuage Ed's anxiety. Um, Ed would appreciate notes of well wishes and, and, and prayers from you. Ed would appreciate those of you who are clerics to remember him at the altar, uh, those of, of you mass who intentions are, and prayers, yes, very mm-hmm. much. Always, those, of you those are always welcome. Who are um, who are contemplative religious? Ed would appreciate it if you sort of turn the cloister to the intention of of Ed and. <laughs> those of you who are not cloister religious need to um, offer up the daily, um, you know, sufferings and crosses and struggles of of your own life for Ed and. <laughs> at any rate, I, I think Ed would be greatly assuaged by both your prayers and your notes of well wishes. If you wish to send him things he would appreciate it several of you have reached out to me over the past week to ask me for ed's address in order to send him things and i've made an evaluation about each person requesting ed's address whether or not i think that they're knowing how much ed values his privacy i've made an evaluation uh from each person requesting his address effectively whether or not i think that they're going to use it in some nefarious purpose and um ed you'll be glad to know that i've um decided in 100% of the cases to provide your address to those who wish to send you <laughs> Is this why some I got sort a, of a package copy or, of Little Women in the Mail today? I do not know why you got Little Women in the Mail. I got, it's right here on my desk. I literally arrived two hours ago. Someone sent me an edition of Little Women. 
Oh, well, that's nice. It's a deeply personal troll, so whoever did it, well yeah. done. Well, well played. Very, I'm very horrified well done. that they have my address, but there we are. Yeah, it's very, very well done. Uh, okay, so anyhow, all of those things could help to assuage Ed's anxiety. And also, dear listeners, please allow me to turn this into an entirely commercialized plug. Another thing that would assuage Ed's anxiety uh, is your uh, support for our continued work here at The Pillar, both in the podcast and at PillarCatholic.com. Ed, you see, has... Um, channeled a lot of his anxiety about the baby into anxiety about the future and ongoing viability of our journalism project, which means I hear frequently about his anxiety about those things and about the rate of uh, subscription growth and retention. And those of you who listen to this podcast, who subscribed over the last week, I would like to extend my thanks. But those of you who have not and who listen to this podcast regularly, please know that one way to help Ed and his wife prepare for the arrival of their baby would be uh, to consider becoming a paid subscriber to The Pillar at PillarCatholic.com. That, that is definitely done. Um, How's that for capitalism? Well done. I, I mean, it, it is true that one becomes acutely panicking about these things when you, you realize you're going to have to provide for a whole other person. At first, after a while, you're like, geez, there's so many people around here. What am I going to do? Yeah, I, I'm yeah. sure I'll get there eventually. Yeah, yeah, I suspect so. Um, okay, let us talk about the things which people like for us to talk about. Um, and uh, and there are a great many things that we could talk about this week. In fact, I sort of solicited input from some of our listeners on Twitter today about what we should talk about. But before we get to some of their suggestions, we can't possibly get to all of them because they made many, many suggestions. But before we get to some of their suggestions, I think we should talk uh, just a little bit about the uh, release of the Vadi Mekum and the... Um, uh, other instructional handbook for uh, the diocesan phase of the Synod on Synodality. So on Tuesday, uh, very kindly, the Holy See did not release these documents on Monday, which here in the United States was a federal holiday, Labor Day, in which we observe and recognize the work of laborers to build and contribute to our common good. Um, so on Tuesday, the Holy See released uh, this these documents that sort of give guidance, guidelines, and input on the diocesan phase of the Synod on Synodality. And Ed, if you can, um, in just a minute or so, and um, dispassionately, perhaps you could offer some reflections on the contents of those documents. Okay. Well, the preparatory document and accompanying Vade Mecum uh, were keen to emphasize that the synodal process is a, um, well, you have to think of it really, J.D., as something that has to be lived. Um, it is not aiming, so it says, towards any particular result, but it wants, um, in, the, in the words of uh, the document itself, and I want to make sure that I, um, I get this right, so I actually kept the quote, um, the purpose of the Synod, and therefore of this consultation, is not to produce documents, but to plant dreams to draw forth prophecies, J.D., and allow visions and hopes to flourish. Um, so the, the preparatory document and the, in the accompanying vade mecum. Uh, vade mecum, by the way, is an ecclesiastical phrase, literally which means come, come along with me. with me, and which is generally used as a sort of um, handbook for, process, for moving through a process. Yes. Um, for example, I have on my desk right behind me something called the penal procedural vadi mecum, which is in a certain way the exact opposite of the vadi mecum, which arrived in our inboxes this week. Indeed. Um, yes. So anyway, the the intention here is not to tell people what to do, but merely to elaborate for them those things which they're supposed to do. 
um, <laughs> I think would probably be how they would they would have it phrased. And the idea is for um, a big, beautiful conversation at every level of the church, JD, uh, involving um, not just the the sort of tired usual suspects of the bishops, the clergy, um, practicing Catholics, people like that, but people um, at risk of being marginalized. And some of those people who are at risk of being marginalized, uh, as highlighted by the synodal documents, are sort of people who are very much uh, at risk of being marginalized, and, and we're right to have our attention drawn to making sure that they are included. Um, it mentions people with disabilities. It mentions people who um, might be socially marginalized, refugees, immigrants. Um, it, it mentions particularly uh, for the inclusion of the voice of women uh, in the synodal process. And, um, and to have a, a sort of big, freewheeling, free-flowing conversation about the life of the church. And this will then be aggregated up to sort of a regional conversation for different parts of the world. And then the regional conversations will themselves um, sort of float seraphically up to inform the conversations of the Synod of Bishops when it meets in Rome in 2023. And at the end of all of this, we are aiming, so the documents say, at nothing uh, more lofty or... Um, grand than a complete uh, new way of thinking and uh, a new way, dare I say it, JD, of being church. That they, they, the authors of these documents hope that this will represent uh, really a fundamentally new ecclesiology, a new way for the church to think about itself, to um, to go about its life, and and to propose to the world its own identity and mission. I think that's uh, that's the probably best. a pretty good summary. I, that's yeah. probably a pretty good summary, um, and uh, and I, <laughs> I hardly need to ask for your reaction because you, I think, have embedded it in some of it. But I will in a minute. I, I would just say, you know, I, this synod on synodality. The reason we're talking about it so much is because, on the one hand, you know, it's not on the radar of a lot of people. There, you know, someone said to me this week. Well, I think if you asked most Catholics, even most practicing Catholics. They wouldn't know that it was going on. And on the other hand, it is, in fact, intended to be a very big deal. It is intended to be a big thing in the life of the church, which involves all practicing Catholics and even non-practicing Catholics. It's intended to be a very large, broad, consultative conversation, as you say. And I had, had expressed optimism about that conversation weeks ago, and I haven't entirely lost my optimism. It's not wholly and entirely dashed. Um, but the documents do... I think, raise questions about how this is going to work and what the intention is. And um, I had hoped that there would be, on the one hand, more specificity about what was being kind of asked uh, of people and kind of what kinds of things they were going to discuss. And uh, so that there would be some structure to the thing and something around which to hang a conversation. And um, and on the other hand, I had hoped that there would be um, uh, less of a a sense, a sort of implied sense that the whole thing might be a kind of deliberative discernment. You know, I had hoped that the Synod on Synodality's initial phases would be understood as a consultative phase so that diocesan bishops and the Roman pontiff could hear from people who they need to hear from, namely practicing Catholics, and from that sort of discern the will of God with regard to pastoral care. And the documents seem to imply that the discernment sort of takes place by everybody without sort of centering it, it seems to me, in a sufficiently sort of a ecclesiological framework for a hierarchical church in which it is the job of the bishop to discern 
the will of God within the realm of, you know, within the sort of boundaries of orthodoxy for the diocese. And it is the job of the Roman pontiff to discern the will of God for the church. It's, it's my job to discern the will of God for my family and, and in a certain way to speak prophetically and, um, and those kinds of things. But, um, and I can contribute to the job of the, of the, of the church's hierarchy in meaningful ways, as can all Catholics by virtue of their baptism. But there are some distinctions, I think, in in our ecclesiology that are not really drawn out here. I, I would disagree. I think those distinctions are there. What has uh, changed, uh, the alternative vision being proposed by these documents, I would argue, is not that the distinctions aren't there, but that there's been quite a, quite a leveling of, of those distinctions, that no longer do we have um, the Second Vatican Council's concept of the census fidelium, which is the guarantee of the authenticity of the faith expressed by the church when the whole church, which is the pope, the bishops, the priests, and the faithful, all with unanimous um, acclaim, mm -hmm. pronounce upon a matter of faith and morals. But instead, what these documents do is, and it's very stark to see them sort of quoting that traditional you might say, tradition, traditional teaching of the Second Vatican Council on what the census fidelium is, and then saying, well, no, actually what we're doing is proposing a different understanding, that the real census fidelium is, um, is of the laity, of practicing Catholics, but also, and perhaps even in a special way, Catholic baptized Catholics who have abandoned the practice of the faith, perhaps even don't profess it. In a way that seems to sort of pit... Um, the sort of church, the, the the traditional understanding of the census fidelium, which is the whole church, um, it rather sort of to divide it into classes and then pit them against each other. Or potentially, no, not even seems to. It does. It only it describes it as um, in dialogue with the teaching authority of the pope and the bishops. So it's now a two way conversation with two voices of authority, um, rather than a synodal process being truly synodal in the mind and. Um, teaching of the church being a consultative process under a particular authority figure, the diocese bishop locally or the pope with regards to the synod of bishops in Rome. Now we're basically having a dialogue. Now it's very clear, the documents are very clear, this is not about a parliament. This is not about majority. Um, this is not about taking a vote and having majority rule. And, you know, that's true and good. Uh, the uh, A cynic, not me, JD, because I'm not cynical, um, I'm not cynical, but a cynic might say that's because the kind of wackadoo ideas being um, that will be put forward in some of these meetings that will inevitably be floated up all the way to Rome will not be representative of anyone's majority view, but they're going to get a lot of air and attention anyway and imbued with a lot of faux authority as being the new census fidelium. Um, a cynic might think that. I don't. Um, but this is this is really what these documents do is it proposes a very radical, very, I would say, Anglican ecclesiology. And in fact, when these documents were presented by uh, the officials and leadership of the permanent secretary of the Synod of Bishops and expert consultants to that body on Tuesday in Rome at the press conference, the, the Church of England's uh, permanent synod, which has a tricameral system of a house of bishops, a house of clergy effectively, and then a house of the laity, um, each sort of in, a, in the manner of a legislature or parliament proposing and debating and voting on um, different proposals to do with uh, church governance and teaching, um, that this was held up as a sort of wonderful exemplar 
that you know you know it oh there's a sort of there's still a technical hierarchy and the bishops have the final say and if you think that is true i invite you to go shake hands with the nearest um member of the church of england you can find and ask them how that's going because i talked to a few of them and they they were not giving rave reviews of that system i can tell you but that this is the model being proposed both in the documents and by the people who have written it um and it's not always apparent that this is what's going on the the language of the documents is not what I would describe as accessible. Um, no, not by no stretch of the imagination. And and actually, that may end up being a saving grace, and I'll talk about why in, in a minute. Okay. Maybe it will turn out to be a saving grace. I, I did not find it an edifying read. I thought it was jargonistic twaddle, but, you know, that's what it is. Um, I, I think the entire document doesn't... Um, I, I, I don't like it. I, I found, uh, not just that I find the ideas in it uh, against the teaching of the church, against the teachings of the church over the centuries, and also the expressed teachings of the Second Vatican Council. I was also, and I continue to be, and this is, I think, the fourth meeting of the Synod of Bishops in a row. Yeah, third, fourth meeting of the Synod of Bishops in a row, where I was offended by the presentation of this document and the sort of ridiculous rainbow silhouette crayon style font chosen for the documents. I mean, these it is presented in a way that would be embarrassing for an inner city community center. And for some reason, the people at the permanent secretariat seem to think that this is an appropriate way for the sacrament of salvation to propose a sweeping conversation about her very nature to herself. It It, it is this, this sort of BS Sesame Street graphics, I think, are... <laughs> They are wildly inappropriate. One thing that strikes me about their being condescending is that they will, they will, um, they are least. (laughs) The whole thing reads like you're being Uh, lectured by a panel of social workers. Right. So we're going to tolerate, I mean, truthfully, if my bishop asked me to participate in the thing, I I will participate in the thing. And, you know, I, I will, as a person who practices the faith and is kind of around this sort of thing, roll my eyes at the font and the jargon and figure out what it is but that they're these asking aren't, me. This and, is the thing. Oh, 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 this let, is let not me. window dressing, J.D. This expresses the mind and seriousness of the drafters. Yes. May I? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. It's fine. I, you know, and I think you will too. You will be irritated by it, but you'll roll your eyes at the sort of frivolity of those kinds of things and, and be frustrated about the jargon. But if your bishop asks you, if your bishop asks you to contribute to a discussion about what is called the fundamental question, which we'll get to in a minute, you'll do it. Um, but the, the, the presentation, the extremely jargony presentation and, and the, the font and these kinds of things, and just the sort of the sheer volume of the thing, I think the body make is like, I don't know, 42 pages, which 48. is, yeah, yeah which is not a body make at all. Um, those things are not going to, uh, no, I have it open. I think it is 42, but it, it doesn't matter. Those things are not going to attract the non-practicing Catholics who are, are, are designed to participate in this thing. And, and again, I think it's cool if the church wants to listen to non-practicing Catholics in order for bishops to best discern how to reach them and to understand what their needs and frustrations are and, and what they understand and misunderstand about the church. I think all of that is fine. I don't think that's the framing of this, but you're not going to get them with this kind of stuff because while we'll sort of roll our eyes at it and say, well, that's all kind of weird, um, but sometimes we do weird stuff. People who are not sort of already in the choir are not going to be attracted to it or, or, or turned on by it, as it were. I would agree with that. 
But again, it's not just that this is unappealing to anyone as an aesthetic. Right. It is that it's indicative of the people who are running this process and who have drafted this document and will be shaping its final output, presumably. And it could not be clearer how dated the mentality of this is if they'd woven the entire Vade Mecum onto felt. Which is, is why, yeah, which is why I think, you know, it, it will have an extreme focus and it does. The text itself has an extreme focus on what we might call the horizontal dimension of the Christian life, which is to say... Uh, us all being us together, be, being church, as it were, with a, with what struck me as a relatively anemic presentation of the vertical dimension of the Christian life, which is to say, um, our worship offered to God the Father through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the holy sacrifice of the Did Mass. Did any of that get a mention uh, in the document? I, I didn't. See. Not that I saw, but the, that's my point, is it will have, I think, an undue and excessive influence on, on, on the one and not the other. Um, my optimism for the potential of the Synod at the local level is not entirely diminished, and I'll tell you why. But the documents are, I, I think, in a certain way, as jargony, as confusing, as muddled, and as um, uh, horizontal as is possible. And yeah, I think sort of the aesthetic represents that in a certain way. Now, why do I remain convinced that there is a way in which at the local level this thing could be of some value to the Church? Because... The Vadi Mekum, 42 pages or 48 pages, depending on which of us you believe, um, and I happen to have it open, so 42, 42 pages, the Vadi Mekum, um, and then however many pages for the other handbook, uh, are so dense that I suspect a lot of dioceses are just going to extract from it the fundamental question, as it were, and then do build something that they think is attainable for discussion about that. We've asked a couple of dioceses if we can interview the people who are doing the planning and get a picture of what they're doing and get a good sense of how it's going to work in a bunch of dioceses. And I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I think some dioceses have been very open to that. And I'm, you know, they don't yet have answers because they just got this stuff, but I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing sort of how they do things. But I think there's going to be a ton of kind of diversity with regard to how they do things, frankly, because there's no, for all the text, um, there's no there there. There's no like, you know, this is what you do, bring people into groups of 12 and have these kind of discussions, or this is what you do, bring people into a group of 50 and have this kind of discussion. There's just, there. this is a fundamental question, you should engage people about it. And um, and so the reason I'm optimistic is because a diocese that is entrepreneurial and thoughtful and is interested in the transmission of the gospel could use it as effectively um, a sort of uh, mandated period of consultation with those to whom... Uh, evangelization is directed and those um, for whom evangelization is mandated. And I can't help but come back to the idea that that is a good idea. It is a sort of a, perhaps a hijacking of the thing, but the thing being um, only a set of nebulous ideas is in a certain way hijacked without um, without sin. I, I don't disagree with any of that. I, I think that Results at the local level will vary dependent entirely on the intention and sincerity of the local bishop and the local people taking part. I think that's all very likely. And I'm sure there will be um, some dioceses in different parts of the world, in this country, in Latin America, in Africa, um, in Europe maybe, that, that they will have a beautiful experience of authentic synodality. And I hope that is the case in as many places as possible. Because synodality, this is what we don't want to throw out with the bathwater. Synodality is a real thing and a good thing. Right, right. Yeah. And yeah. and all of that is all of that is possible, and, and I hope it does happen. But 
The reason I have been pessimistic from the beginning, and these documents have, as far as I'm concerned, confirmed my worst fears wholeheartedly, is that however good the local experience may be in different places, that is not what is going to make its way to the top. That is not what's oh. going to be in the preparatory document for the meeting of the Synod of Bishops in 20, 2023. And that is absolutely not what is going to be in the post-Synodal document, which comes out from that meeting. And I doubt very much any of it will be what is reflected in the post-synodal apostolic exhortation. No, it's not going to be silly. I, without speaking for the post-synodal apostolic exhortation, which has have been, those have been less silly. The documents issued by the Pope yes, after the, the last post-synodal few apostolic exhortations after the Amendment has generally I've been a corrective to the nonsense yeah, right, that came exactly. out of the but Synod no, itself. I think, I think all those things, I think beyond the di- much beyond the diocesan level, a lot of it's just going to be silly, silly, silly. But I mean... No, but this isn't just about silly, JD. This is, and this is the part that no, I, I'm being serious. And this is why the the sort of Crayola font gets me so angry. Is it's like it, the whole thing is cloaked in this sort of felt banner pastiche of you know, oh well, it's just a bit silly and passe, and you don't need to pay any attention to it any more than you do like you know tambourines in the choir loft at your local parish. It's like no, this is a serious document. Whether whether it's written by serious people or not, whether it's expressing serious thoughts or not. It is a serious document from an organ of the Holy See that is proposing, in its own words, a radical revision of the way in which the church functions. We can't just laugh it off. I'm not laughing it off, but I don't think it's going to happen either, right? So, I mean, I think you're right that from top to bottom, there are going to be uh, proposals of, you know, uh, proposals that either deviate in a direct and apparent and sort of front-facing way from Catholic doctrine, or which undermine Catholic doctrine by reflecting a non-Christian anthropology or by inserting into, you know, inserting this whole sort of notion of uh, class warfare, which is effectively what the framing of this, the way that clericalism is framed in this thing, and, and even the census fidelium is, is framed in this thing, and reflecting, I think, a, a notion of um, human rights and uh, that is sort of at odds with, with Christian doctrine in certain ways. Um, I, I think all of that is going to be true. I just, you know, I think we just have to make a certain kind of peace with the fact that this is a period in the life of the church in which that kind of stuff is given voice and um, that is beyond our control and what we can be certain of is that the church will not err in her teaching of faith and morals and the church will perdure beyond this period. And I think in a certain way, we have to just get used to the idea that this kind of silly stuff exists. And the reason I'm being nonchalant about it is because we can't allow it to throw our, and I'm not saying this about you, but we can't allow it to throw ourselves into a moral panic and we can't allow it to distract ourselves from the mission of the gospel. I interviewed a bishop today who was talking about hurricane recovery. He's a Louisiana bishop, and he's been going through hurricane recovery for several years now. And, you know, the the thing that he said most of all is he said, like, I have to have a focus on the basics, and that means um, teaching the gospel and sanctifying people. And um, that's made all the more apparent because of the way in which our whole sort of diocese is laid bare. They had like 500 uh, um, buildings that had suffered damage, church buildings that had suffered damage in the diocese, buildings owned by the church that had suffered damage. And he said, I can't just, I can't allow myself to get distracted by the silly stuff because there's too clear and too manifestly an imperative towards the important stuff. And I guess the reason, Ed, why I, if I seem nonchalant about it, I guess the reason why I seem nonchalant about it is not because I disagree with you about any of it. It's just because th- there's an imperative to 
um, living the Christian life. There's an imperative to the reform of the church for good governance in the United States, the renewal of the church's spiritual life, the, the proclamation of the gospel in a project that once we called the New Evangelization that seemed to me to be far more important than what will inevitably be um, a bunch of extremely wealthy people uh, with too much time on their hands proffering ideas that I know are not going to last for very long because they're inconsistent with the teachings of the church and the guarantees of the Holy Spirit to protect that teaching. I don't know. I'm with you on the guarantees of the Holy Spirit and the church will always endure. I just wonder that if these ideas get off the ground and if the German Synod comes to Rome, um, the church is going to perdure in a very, very different way to the one that we've known. Your idea, first of all, your idea, your your approach to this is um, is better for business, right? Um, for us. Um. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Um, and my idea is worse for business because my my sort of fundamental thesis here is we can't get too upset about this stuff, and yet you and I cover this stuff day in and day out. And I think we should cover this stuff day in and day out because I think we should be doing everything we can to assist on insist on accountability from our leaders, and I think it's important that Catholics have an understanding of these things. I just think it's important that we contextualize them. And and when I say that, I mean, um, if the, you say if the German Synod comes to Rome, um, what will happen with regard to the German Synod probably is one of two things. Either it will fizzle out or it will get to a point of schism. Um, if we should be praying hard against the possibility that it will get to uh, a point of schism, um, I think it's probably more likely, because I don't think there will be a sort of Vatican showdown, that it will fizzle out. Um, but uh, one of those two things... Uh, will happen. Um, but will the church, qua church, will the bishops of the church in communion with the Roman pontiff um, teach doctrinal error regarding the deposit of faith given to us by Christ our Lord and through his incarnation? No. And so, um, as much as I think we can pay attention to these things, as much as I was disturbed, I mean, you remember we covered the Amazon Synod together, as much as I was like disturbed by any number of things that were going on there, and I don't mean sort of the circus outside, I mean things that were being said inside the press, as much as I was disturbed, and I'll continue to be disturbed about those things, and as much as they evidence um, the presence of people who don't, you know, who don't hold the teachings of the church at, at all levels of the church, as much as they evidence all those things, at the same time, I just, I think in whatever way, we, in order to live the Christian life in 2021, um, as Catholics who uh, who live a life of abundance instead of a life of um, anxiety, just need to figure out how to integrate that into a broader understanding of what it is to be faithful sons and daughters of the church. I don't know. I admire your ability <laughs> to read all of this and react with such measured faith um that is good and laudable but no but i i do i i am however <laughs> there's no properly but, there's offended by this patronizing claptrap and sure totally I, yeah it's ridiculous you wait <laughs> you wait one day it'll come for something you love <laughs> it is it is it is coming for something that i love and, and 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 one of the things i love is sort of moral seriousness and uh and one of the things i love is you know what i really love clean style one of the things i love is being able to open a text and read a paragraph and know what it says and i can't right i mean I, i'm not trying to be you know um uh hyperbolic it's just that i try and read a lot of this stuff and it, a lot of it is effectively unintelligible. I mean, there's no way around that. 
But the good thing about that is that it spins itself out. It, it is effectively unintelligible, and um, and there's a way in which we can give into what is happening as a result of that. There's a way in which we can sort of say, oh yeah, there's all this kind of nonsense going on with this stuff at the Secretariat, and the Synod is going to be crazy. And in two years, we're going to be at the Synod, and we're going to of bishops in Rome, and we're going to say that it's crazy, and we're going to call all of that out. Um, and and we should, and I mean, we should identify all of it. I'm I'm not disputing you about that. Um, it, I just uh, I I don't I I want to do that in a way, in which I can at the same time say, um, and this is the church which I love and which I place my hope uh, as a human being and as a believer, because it's different from politics, right? I mean, it's different from politics in that. I look at the political, major political parties of this country and I say, look, both of these things are disintegrating into visions of the human person and human flourishing that are absolutely contrary to what is true. And I do have anxiety about that. What is the sort of, what is the sort of long-term future of our country? Yeah, but you don't expect it, any better from political parties. one of those decisions, but I don't expect any better. And uh, I, yeah, right. So on the one hand, you think I don't expect any better. So I'm frustrated in the same way that I'm frustrated about the sexual abuse scandal in the church because I hold the church to a higher standard. And I would like, beca because she proclaims truth, I'd like her to live in accord with the truth. Th th I get that. I, I'm, I'm empathetic to that. At the same time, I have this expectation that's confounding about the church, which is that she will be better um, even in her miserableness, right? I mean, like that... She will endure and perdure, and that in the meantime, Father Pastor can proclaim the gospel and confirm people and, and welcome them to the church. And these kind of things can you don't have to be afraid of the existential collapse of the church and thereby <laughs> a, a sort of practical refutation of her own divine truth claims to say, fine, the church will not and cannot through the Holy Father and the bishops in communion with him, propose doctrinal error or speak against the faith and sacraments that have been entrusted to her care. But even without doing that, you can do a lot of damage to the good well, of souls can. along the way. You, you can. There's, there can be no existential collapse of the church. But yes, you can do a lot of damage in this stuff. And this kind of thing has the potential to be very damaging. And the fight over, you know, the, the notion of, of a tolerated fight over sort of settled doctrine is, is frustrating, right? And even the notion that we're sort of re- that the, that the theologians of the church are relitigating the way in which the Second Vatican Council is to be interpreted and the hermeneutic of the Second Vatican Council and the way in which the documents fit together and the way in which the documents um, complement each other and also and also serve as guardrails against each other. Um, a lot of that is being relitigated now, and, and, and a lot of that actually, I think, plays out in these documents, and that is exasperating and it is concerning. It, it is also ordinary. Um, and by that, I mean, we're in a post-conciliar period, and, uh, and post-conciliar periods are trepidatious uh, for, you know, a century. It takes a, it takes a century for an ordinary, well, let's call it an ordinary ecumenical council to kind of shake out and bake in. And the Second Vatican Council is, by many uh, measures, not an ordinary ecumenical council because it's a pastoral council, which means that it's doing sort of different things than merely the correction of heresies or the articulation of sort of systematically composed, um, the, you know, theological uh, conclusions. And, and so the, it'll take all the more time. So in the one hand, I'm extremely frustrated that um, that so much about sort of the entire sort of paradigm, of, the theological paradigm of the church is being relitigated. And at the same time, I do think it's ordinary, and I do think there's some consolation in that. It is certainly ordinary. I am not consoled. <laughs> Which, what is the period of the church's history 
in which you think there would have been um, maybe this is the question. I said it, it's, is, it is ordinary. I'm not. I'm yeah, not yeah. Disputing. I mean, I don't think there's a period of the church's history in which things would have been less. Um, in in it, which things would have JD, been less. I tumultuous. guess my objections are aesthetic, are aesthetic as much as anything else. Yes, we've always had heresies in the church, but there was a time when at least the heretics were a little <laughs> more intelligent and a little more original and a little more eloquent, and they weren't totally. scribbling their maundering witlessnesses yeah, the font, I mean, in I, crayon. I just, I the font is the, the the font, and it's not the font of the whole text. It's like this sort of superscript font that shows up on a lot of pages. The font is. <sighs> bad and the graphic is bad and you know what the bad graphics interestingly are not unique um to this moment by which i mean that we've been doing this bad graphic thing now for several pontificates and um you know for several decades where the church just keeps putting out these horrible horrible graphics and and, and yeah, but everyone uh, and was doing it in 1992 the difference is you know <laughs> i mean this i'm not kidding you jd the, the preparatory document had everything but a silhouette of phyto dido on the back cover i mean this is so <laughs> i don't know what phyto dido uh, yes, is um how would i possibly know that it's how would i possibly know that it, it is a perfectly cromulent cultural reference from the early 1990s jd <laughs> phyto dido Oh, the Sprite guy. Yeah. Who knew? I did. Thirst is everything. Obey your thirst. Is that this guy? Yes. Okay. Look, I, 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 I'm concerned that I am coming off as insufficiently critical here. Um, no, you're not coming off as insufficiently critical. I, you're not coming across as terribly worried about it. I'm not terribly worried about it because I know exactly what's going to happen. It's going to be an extremely rocky couple of years of people floating really bad ideas and saying it's what the Synod says or what the Church says. It's going to be another set of press conferences with bishops saying things. You know, we, we went to press conferences at the Synod on Amazon at which bishops floated ideas that, you know, you don't even need advanced theological training. You just, like, take out the catechism and say, well, it seems that this number and this number would say that that's impossible or that's not going to happen or that's not how the church understands the relationship between sin, reconciliation, redemption, and sacramental penance or whatever. I mean, it's going to be that again. It's going to be just this whole to-do of uh, of several years of these bad ideas. I hope that they'll be preceded at the diocesan level with something useful. And bishops, I think you have an easy blueprint, because I've been saying for a while, to do something pretty cool. Um, and I look forward to seeing the, you know, the different ways in which American dioceses decide to make use of this sin of time. But after that, it's going to be a whole to-do for a couple of years. And then the interesting thing is it'll be another to-do. And you know what I mean by that? Some of the worst ideas that were being talked about three years ago at the Synod on the Amazon that I sat with you across the table in Rome and said, I don't understand how this is being said. And I don't understand how on earth the church can think that this is, you know, consistent with Catholic. The attention spans were so short that they didn't get it. And they aren't talking about it anymore. There's going to be a new set of bad ideas. I don't think there will be a new set of bad ideas. I think these are the same bad ideas on constant loop, and they just keep going until they get what okay. they want. They'll just keep going until they get what they want, but are they going to get it? Again, they don't have to get it all to do a lot of damage along the way. I, I, do, I do agree with you about that. I do agree with you about that. I just think that it will always be so. And this is what I mean about sort of integration of this into our own into both into both our sort of in, intellectual ecclesiology and our sort of own self-understanding as Catholics, it will always be so that the church will teach definitively what is true and that she will have both extraordinary internal dissension about the veracity of those claims and extraordinary external um, skepticism and derision about those claims. Mm-hmm. That is, again, it's, it's not, it's not that this isn't, an inevitable part of the life of the church it is there have been 
bad ideas being litigated in synods and all sorts of gatherings since the Acts of the Apostles. That I'm not I'm not disputing that. Again, it I just long for a better quality of enemy JD. <laughs> now they're given now what's now what is unique, I mean what seems unique is the way in which those ideas are given a far a more institutionalized platform. Um, you know what I mean? I mean, which is to say the most institutionalized platform um, in that they have sort of office space at the Holy See, um, you know, uh, in certain ways or in which these documents, which have no magisterial weight whatsoever, period, which are, you know, documents from an office of the Holy See. You know, what seems unique is the way in which documents from an office of the Holy See have uh, such um, a platform, an institutional platform to advance even a sort of process which seems designed to result in bad outcomes that seems unique but i'm not sure that it is i'm not even sure that it is in recent history or that i just uh, you know i yes it does seem like this was that was not the case uh you know in in recent history and i i think it probably wasn't but um if i zoom out a little bit from there uh then i have to i think take a more um i have to take a perspective that that accounts for this as just an ordinary reality I can't fight you on that. Again, that is, a, I I admire your <sighs> seraphic calm in the face of all of this. I am not calm, JD. I am mad. I am mad. I am offended. I am I'm offended intellectually. I am offended spiritually. I am offended ecclesiologically. And, and, and I am offended voca- aesthetically. And it's our, and it is, I think, our vocation. You know, I mean, I do think it is. So while I have ultimate confidence, it doesn't mean that we can be quietest about these things or not be involved in them. Um, I, I do think that it is the vocation of Christians, of all Christians, to speak the truth. And that means the vocation of Catholics to defend the truth and um, and, e- and even internally to speak clearly and, um, uh, you know, about what is true and what is not true. Um, when error comes on, you know, from any side, I think that's necessary. I think if bishops say things that are not true or if synodal documents say things that are not true or not consistent with um, the, the articulated church of the, uh, teachings of the church that has to be identified in order to defend the truth. It's not as if we don't have a role in that. And we have, um, by we, I mean, all the baptized have a role in the promotion, defense, and proclamation of truth. Um, but I have certitude that we can do so from a position of um, uh, of tranquility about um, the Lord's presence in in that process we will see (laughs) probably about a year from now i'm gonna be like freaking out about this thing yeah probably (laughs) okay well there's lots of other things going on this week and uh we were talking you know during august about the slowness of august and frankly it seems to me like as soon as september started it things started really moving i mean i don't know um it's always the way yeah, it is. It is always the way. And so I wonder if you would like to talk a little bit about um, the divergent tones of bishops talking about uh, uh, abortion this week in the church, because a couple of bishops have now made sort of public statements about abortion in one way or another. And the tones of those statements are indeed rather divergent. They are. I, I assume you are, as a starter for 10, referring to um, first Archbishop Salvatore Corleone's op-ed in the Washington Post earlier mm-hmm. this week. Um, making, I thought, a, a very heartfelt and very compelling defense and um, explanation of the church's teaching on abortion and, I think, correctly linking it to the church's opposition in the past of segregation um, and other racially discriminatory and dehumanizing public policies. 
I thought it was a well-written and much-needed contribution. Uh, following the Texas heartbeat laws passage, the Supreme Court's decision not to injunct it and our devoutly Catholic President Joe Biden's um, executive order for a whole-of-government response to prevent that law from coming into force. Um, mm-hmm. Which which I think one, stage one of is, a, is the Department of Justice has announced lawsuit today in which the Department of Justice is suing the state of Texas over yes. this over this law. Yeah. It is, in fact, suing the state of Texas. So we'll see how that shakes out. I mean, this was always going to end up back in the Supreme Court anyway, so, mm-hmm. um, you know. Yeah, this is a different path there, but... Yeah, and yeah. fine, you know, in, in a certain sense, let's get on with it. Let's, let's right, see. exactly, just, yeah. Um, so let's that's, that's all, all going on. Anyway, uh, also this week on Wednesday, uh, Joe Biden's bishop, or one of his uh, one of his ordinaries at least by domicile or quasi-domicile, Cardinal Wilton Gregory was addressing the National Press Club, an institution I was surprised to learn still exists. Oh, yeah, yeah, they, there's, uh, yes. Well, it's still there, and they held a, a luncheon. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of people that are members of the National Press Club. They're the sort of people who go to luncheons. Now, what, now, I... <laughs> you have been quaffing on luncheon all day, and uh, and I guess I just uh, what what is what is your uh, what is your uh, um, uh, objection to or take on those who would use the word luncheon to describe a, a lunch event? Nothing. I just I, I'm not saying that um, <laughs> the sort of people who who unselfconsciously a... use the word luncheon are also the sort of people who like drive gold colored Lexuses or are golf enthusiasts <laughs> or Freemasons or anything like. That. But I'm saying the overlap of those circles and event oh, diagrams you know is pretty big. I bet big. a lot of them are members of the Anglican, the Anglican tricameral legislature. I bet you they are. I bet you they like a good <laughs> this luncheon. This is the difference, right? Is I mean, yes, a lot of damage can be done along the way. But at the end of the day, the Anglican tricameral um, legislature can like actually change the doctrine of the Anglican Church and um, and and uh, sorry, yeah, we have some position of terms. The permanent synod of the Church of England. The permanent synod of the Church of England can actually like change its doctrine, the doctrinal teaching of the thing. And if I were an Anglican, I, I'd be deeply concerned about that. Well, it's uh, the fractured not, the Anglican Communion yeah, worldwide. But. The the reason I'm sort of not concerned about it in the same way as a Catholic is because I believe in the in in the divine protection of the deposit of faith and the and the charisms of the church that go along with that and the church's their doctrinal inerrancy and these kinds of things and so yes the, i do think a lot of damage can be done along the way but the damage will be um a consequence of those who must choose between what the church teaches and what they would wish for the church to teach and i'm sort of less sympathetic to that than i am to people who belong to a church in which doctrine is um mutable Okay, but we have to move on. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify. Okay. Uh, anyway, so... Because I feel like there's a big overlap between people who use the word luncheon and people who belong to the Anglican Permanent Synod of Permanent Synodacy. That's probably true. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of golf enthusiasts there. Um, <laughs> Although I suppose if they're Anglicans, they're probably cricket enthusiasts. No, no, no. Cricket's a different thing. Um, <laughs> we, anyway, so, uh, yeah, Cardinal Gregory was addressing this luncheon and um, he was asked as uh, as was perhaps inevitable about president biden's press conference uh, at which um, he said uh, finally out loud what we've all known for some time which is that he does not any longer believe that life begins at conception he quote unquote respects those who do um, but he's just going to mobilize the entire federal government to prevent them <laughs> from having any 
say in the state legislature, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So anyway, Joe Biden has, uh, to put it extremely plainly, uh, he has publicly denied a a set teaching of the church. He has, by executive action, authorized an aggressive push to legally permit the taking of innocent human life, which the church proclaims as a de fide uh, teaching to be believed with divine and Catholic faith to be gravely immoral. Um, And Cardinal Gregory was asked about this, and he said basically that the church teaches us and always taught that life begins at conception, um, and that the president is not demonstrating Demonstrating that Catholic Catholic teaching. Catholic teaching. I suppose he means the president's actions are not demonstrative of Catholic teaching because they're um, contrary and inimical to Catholic teaching. Well, that would be an observation rather than a comment Um, and and a rather obvious observation, too, I would have thought. But that was Cardinal Gregory's response to that question. Uh, And of course, Cardinal Gregory has in the past said uh, when when Biden was still sort of affecting by silence to still hold his previous position of holding everything the church teaches on abortion and um, when life begins at conception and all those things, um, but just not going to impose it on anyone else. Uh, Cardinal Gregory said that he, you know, would would not countenance a sort of public confrontation or pastoral correction of the president, because that would be to uh, to go into the church's discussions with the administration with a loaded gun on the table was how he described it. Um, and so he gave this this answer uh, at the National um, Press Club. And, I mean, he was, uh, the room seemed reasonably satisfied with his answer. Uh, the person who, yeah. who asked mm-hmm. him the question gave him a big smile for it. Cardinal Gregory yeah. had a big smile. Um, everyone seemed happy with that answer. I'm not really sure what it means. I'm not sure what it's supposed to achieve, but that, that was it. And I think this kind of sums up the two, as you say, uh, Voices in the episcopacy in the United States on this subject, which is you have those who are making a an increasingly desperate plea for some recognition mm-hmm. of the inhumanity of what is being done through legalized mm-hmm. abortion, and those who appear to just be kind of shrugging it off when well, or if not shrugging it off, like sort of saying like, yeah, this is what we believe, but hey, this is a pluralistic society, and we don't want to push on a way that would make people uncomfortable or take a national stage and a platform to um, instead of just sort of saying this is what the church teaches, offer a compelling defense of it or a right, compelling... Right, but Joe Biden is not a pluralistic um, Catholic. Joe Biden is just a Catholic no, yeah, who contradicts right, church no, teaching, is trying to ram an abortion agenda no, down I mean, the throat of states. In terms of two d- voices, right? There's there's a voice which says, I'm going to... Bishops need to be making a vigorous or defensive life. And then um, there, there seems to be another set of voices which is not saying, no, the Catholic Church doesn't teach that, but rather offering a, an affirmation that, yes, indeed, the church teaches this, but in such a way um, as not to... Um, offer an invitation for others to understand the depth of the church's teaching or its significance or its meaning or a compelling sort of argument or case or... Or, or, um, or even appearing uh, all that alarmed like, by the... Divergence from it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, or and the consequences of that right. divergence there, in the case of, say, the president of the United serious States. consequences there. Yes, there lives will be lost. Very, you know, right. Mm-hmm. 60 that's million lives right. have already been lost. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But again, that seems to really alarm some of the bishops and not particularly alarm others and i don't one get of that the things one of the things is that you know that is that is that there is i think there is an inroad i think among some bishops to the to an argument or a way of of way of reading which i think is a um, not quite what cardinal burden had in mind but a way of reading what cardinal burden had to say about the seamless garment 
um, uh, you know, of, of, of life issues and social te- of Catholic social teachings to um, advance an argument which insists that we can't stop something which is violent, which ends, which, which is destructive of human life until we have um, sufficiently sort of provided every possible alternative and addressed every single possible motivating factor for those acts of violence. And, and, and that argument is unique to abortion. Nobody says of any other kind of act of violence, um, we can't make laws against murder until we have every single, in, until we have an absolute certain way that every single person who might be motivated to murder, uh, or compelled to murder has uh, has some other means of redress. Yes, we don't even we, we certainly don't say that even as a church about the death penalty. We don't say, well, you know, it is true that there are some people who are um, uh, who are violent in prison and these kinds of things, and um, we can't stop the death penalty until we have a perfectly designed penal system so that any sort of problem that we might be unjustly trying to remedy by execution, we have some just remedy for. We don't say that. We Rather, the church has been saying in this country, bishops have been saying, we need to abolish the death penalty because there's no just reason to execute people in this country. And the consequence of that, I think I talked about this last week too, the consequence of that is then we're going to have to fix a lot of things, right? I mean, we're going to say yes to life and fix a lot of things. But again, I think that argument does sort of, th- that vision that says, yes, abortion is a grave moral evil, but... We can't. Um, we can't do anything about it until we're until all living in a John Lennon until song. Until we're all living, yeah. Until we're all living in a John Lennon song. I do think that argument sort of creeps its way into the thinking of um, of even some people in the Episcopate in a way that is um, disturbing, uh, unhealthy, yeah. mm-hmm. baffling, and uh, unhelpful and inconsistent. Yeah. I would yeah. absolutely agree with that. So this thing is a big deal. I mean, if you don't, you know, if I'm, if I seem like I don't think the synod on synodality is a big deal, which I actually said I think it's a very big deal and will shape the church for some time to come. Um, but, um, but if I seem not to think it's a big deal, I think this thing is indeed a very big deal because the actions of President Biden on abortion actually exceed the predictions of what uh, most, I think, Catholics thought that Biden's position on abortion would be. And most Catholics, I think, thought that Biden's position on abortion as president would already be contrary to the teachings of the Catholic Church. But it seems that because of the Texas law and the situation they're in, Biden has actually exceeded or at least accelerated what was predicted for him. And so that changes the dynamic of uh, how bishops, it would seem to me it would necessarily change the dynamic of how bishops should respond or would respond. You don't have um, you don't have a Catholic saying, I'm personally opposed, but you have a Catholic saying, I'm going to make sure my administration does every single thing possible to preserve the possibility of abortion. And yet you have this kind of reaction that says, well, um, yeah, he's not with the Catholic Church, but uh, let's change the subject. I don't really want to be talking about this any more than I have to be. And then you see other bishops. You know, today I saw a bishop... Who um, who tweeted out a statement about a congressman in his in his diocese, a congressman who supports legal protection for abortion, and he basically wrote like, you know, this guy, the the the, the consequences of this action are on this guy's soul, and 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 um, and it seemed to me like it was sort of like entering into the debate in a way that you or I might enter into the debate as lay people, but what sets bishops apart from us is their authority, and um, that's what I keep that's what I sort of keep seeing is that bishops are given authority by God to. Um, uh, to teach and sanctify, but also to govern the church. And the whole way in which this issue is presenting itself and which bishops are, you know, saying this or trying to change the subject here or sort of tweeting about a guy here, none of those things are yet witnesses of bishops exercising their authority in order to address 
um, the, the authority given to them by God in order to address a, a problem, something that many of them have identified as a problem um, on the part of Catholics in their dioceses. And I think that's probably because of an anti-authoritarian sort of generational perception on their part that, you know, you know hey, man, I don't want to be the heavy and those kinds of things. Mm. I think it's also because bishops don't want to be. I also think it's because bishops don't want to be, uh, don't think that they'll be supported necessarily by Rome. I think it's because they also think that some of the, you know, more uh, prominent and influential members of the College of Cardinals here in the United States will not support what they're doing and may well kind of use sort of ecclesiastical channels to, to, to sanction bishops who act too strongly to govern. I think that's a deterrent. I think bishops don't want to be out on their own to do those things. But what strikes me about this whole thing is the way in which we, we do see what I would say is a sort of like um, just an unused to the point of becoming nearly vestigial, um, the, the authority possessed by bishops in part of their sort of um, part of their, their their tripartite munera. I would agree with that. I think there is a sort of substitute teacher syndrome um, at work in in a lot of these cases where basically no one wants to threaten or to act with authority uh, if they feel like the person they're going to threaten or act with authority against is just going to ignore them and thereby mm-hmm. uh, seem to expose them as as having no authority which you know is a legitimate fear if your authority is human if however yeah. you're a successor of the apostles and your authority is divine um you cannot invoke or act with that authority in a way which is hollow it will always have consequences it will always have effect this is the nature of the office of bishop so i wish that um, I do wish that bishops would act with a little more self-confidence. Yeah, you will learn, Ed, uh, you know, you'll learn about, um, you know, uh, excused absences, um, task-related task excused absences and the importance of them. You will learn about the way in which um, one must uh, draw attention to the slightest things in order to get credit for them. And you will also learn that a great deal of fatherhood is um, um, exercises of authority um, made in the face of someone inclined and disposed to ignore. And, um, you know, that's probably half the game. It doesn't mean it oughtn't be done, um, even if it is ignored, because good fatherhood is always trying to um, put a person on the path to, uh, to to their proper end, which is heaven, um, even if they're not being heard. Um, the corrective element of fatherhood, and I, I bring this up because this is, Episcopacy is a kind of fatherhood, the corrective element of fatherhood is essential to the exercise of the thing itself well and parenting is parenting even if you do it by not doing anything yeah that's right it's it's not a question of well i don't want to do that because it might not work so i won't do that and then nothing is done it's no not doing something is doing something yeah and all the things don't work gosh if you didn't do anything because you didn't think it was going to work i don't know what you do with those kids because none of the things work but you just keep at it you know yeah yeah okay very good we've we've actually run over time if you can believe it I think this has been a very good conversation. I think it has. I mean, you repeated yourself a lot, but, you know, people will forgive you because they like you. You're the nicer guy. But I think, but one of the things about our editor is that our our editor will just cut out a lot of my repetition. I I presume, I almost never listen to the podcast when it's produced. So I presume that our editor, like, takes my ramblings and makes them tighter and therefore sound more smart. But I don't, I hope that that's happening. No, you you got much of a space fund out of there, buddy. I, oh. 
<laughs> well, let me just say, I'd really like it to be happening that when I am <laughs> rambling and scrambling, a lot of the a lot of the reaching is cut so that I just sound articulate. You do always sound articulate, JD, and no, often no. very, very um, committed to making your point. <laughs> I know that I've been insulted, but I don't know the whole of the insult. Ah, that's not true at all. Um, okay. You, you've, uh, you've always, you've had no problem interpreting me in in the past. If if I meant anything more by it, I'm sure you'd know it right away. In fact, when you were reading my, when you were reading my newsletter this week, I said there's a sentence in here that I'm especially fond of, and I want to see if you can pick it out of a rambling. How long was it? Two thousand word. 22, I think your newsletter this week, I, I, I measured it as like 2,300 words or something. Right. Like and you, you picked out the one sentence that I did actually like the best. So I, you yeah. know, you, you're pretty good at, but actually JD, speaking of hidden meanings, uh, and you trying to understand me, I have a little game for you this week. All right. You like, it's part of your shtick on the podcast that you tease me for, as you put it, being British. Uh, well, actually, I usually say that you're English. Right. Which is not true. It is not true to say that I am English. No, you're English, Ed. No, I'm, I'm not. You? No. You're not a subject of Her Majesty the Queen? Here again, you've made a category error. I have a British passport. Yeah, you do, because because people who are who are of the following nationalities can have British passports. Northern Irish, Welsh, Scottish, Manx, or English. Which of them are you? Well, I'm there's not, no I'm such a, thing as I'm British. Br- are you European? Are Did, you just... I didn't think that you had just had you, these sort of weird... What do you mean there's no such thing as being a British? identities. No, no you, one... You, be, pick a nation, man. I mean, next you're going to tell me you're just... Oh, I'm European. No, I... Um, Check out my scarf and my affected continental accent. That's weird. Uh, no, I, to, I, I was not born in England. I was educated there, although... Oh, no, you're English, though. It's funny. I think... Um, I think it was the Duke of Wellington who said something along the lines of <laughs> being English is a matter of birth, being British is a matter of education. Uh, okay, but and you he was born in Ireland, that, so when he mm, said that, it was uh, anyway. Um, a anyway. person who would say, "I think it was the Duke of Wellington," was English, but he was Irish. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the Duke of Wellington was. Yeah, yeah. he was born in Ireland. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, he to, had, to that he end, had, you know how often, many men he had? He had ten thousand men. You know what he did with them? No, that's the Duke of York. Oh, yes, You're thinking indeed. of the Grand he Old Duke of York. grand and old. You know what he did with his men. Yeah, he marched them up to the top of the hill, and then he marched them down again. And when they were up, they were up. And when they were down, they were down. And when they were neither halfway up, they were neither up nor down. Man, I feel like getting you to do that extremely English thing might be the best accomplishment I've had today. Well, Okay, so what do you want to do now? I, I'm going to, uh, since you often like to um, affect the inability to understand what I'm saying because of my alleged Englishness, I thought I would just put it to the test. I have I have it before me a, a list of what I would consider common words or expressions uh, in Britain, in England, if you prefer. Um, most of them translate into Scots too, but I, I won't speak for all of them. And, and I thought you could tell me what you think they mean. Okay. All right. Uh, JD, what does skint mean? Uh, can you use it in a sentence? Yeah, well, well, I don't want to. I mean, can you give me an etymology? It is, it is, um, it is an adjective. You would describe a person as skint. You might skint. describe yourself as skint, often. Would uh, I you, not you necessarily personally, but I'm saying a person might describe either themselves or another person as being skint. Um, I I feel like it probably is a lack, like um, tired. Okay. Uh, no, no, you're correct. That it describes a lack. It is to be without funds. It is oh. to be stony broke. Oh, I'm I'm 
skint right. I'm skint right now. Mates, could somebody else pick up the... We're not going to do this if you're going to do that. Okay. We're going to stop this Dick Van Dyke crap right now. We're not going to have... This is not an excuse for you to do your Cockney accent. No, I totally get it. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yes, skint uh, skint is, is basically to be impoverished. Uh, specifically to have no cash on you. So you... Oh, okay. Just I don't have any cash. So if instead of saying I don't have any cash, I just... Oh, I'm skin- well, it can be a little I'm more skin- existential. But yes, you might you might plead your inability to buy a round at the bar because you're oh, skint. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. JD, what does it mean to be jammy? If someone is described as being jammy. Uh, with a Y or an IE? With a Y. What with properties a y. do they possess? Is this a... I mean, Jamaica is kind of English-ish. Is this... Um, is this a Jamaican word? No, I mean, well, maybe I, not to my knowledge. I think it predates um, uh, the sort Jamaica. of larger. No, not the, doesn't predate the island of Jamaica. I, but I, I think its usage predates um, the the sort of the larger waves of West Indian immigration to to Britain, which were post war. Um, but I, I'm open maybe, to being wrong on that. Maybe that their hands are sticky, like that they ate jam and their hands got sticky or they ate a lollipop and their hands got sticky or something like that. Oh, don't touch his hands. They're all jammy. No. Um, to describe someone as being jammy is to be lucky. To oh, to have the rub okay. of the green. If you describe someone as jammy, they get away with stuff. They're they're fortunate oh. that way. Oh. They always seem to get the, the right flip of a card. Oh, mm-hmm. that skint bastard didn't have any money, but he was still rather jammy, wouldn't you say? I don't like it when you do that. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. JD, what does it mean to get the hump? <laughs> what? What does it mean to get the hump? If get you... fired, probably. I think it probably means get fired. No, no, it does that's not. getting sacked. Yes, that's being that's, that's getting not... sacked. <laughs> that's um... if I were to say now, don't get the hump, or if I said I've, you know, if you asked me how I was doing, to say, well, I've got the hump today. What what would it mean? What what does it what does it betoken to say that a person has the hump? Okay, well, now I'm just sort of trying to think about where it might come from. So camels have humps. and Do, do English people say that camels have humps, or do you say that they have lumps? I think this is just a zoological observation. I don't think it's a matter of national opinion. Camels okay, do so have humps. Camels have humps, and uh, a person who is near a camel uh, is also near sand, and sand uh, and all things desert are kind of uh, terrible, and so a person who's got the hump is in a bad situation. In a bad, He's in a bad way. You're, you're close. It actually means to be in a bad mood. Oh, well, if you're, again, if you're riding a camel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're not far off. No, to, if you if you describe yourself as having the hump, you're saying they're in a particularly foul mood. Oh, well, see. Yeah. Well done. That's not what I originally thought. No. Um, what does it mean, J.D., to chunder? Could you define the verb chunder for me? Hmm. Is it nautical? No. Okay. Um... Is it? Um, it's. I wish. I feel. I feel like it's probably related to chum, but it's not. It's obviously not related to chum. Chum, chun, chun, chum. Chin, chimmery, chim, chimmery. Uh, to chunder is to sweep a chimney. No, no. It's it's slightly onomatopoeic, if that helps. Um, a, a fat person jumping. No. That's a weirdly specific image to conjure. Um, <laughs> chunder, chunder, chunder. No, to chunder is to be violently sick. Man, have I gotten any of these yet? To vomit. No, you have not. Um, That's no, funny because... You might describe, you know, perhaps one of your children was feeling unwell with a stomach bug and observe that they chundered everywhere. Usually I'm rather jammy, but I am not getting any of these. You, you're, yes, excellent I'm totally usage. skint. All right, I'm well. totally skint on this. <laughs> 
All right. Um, JD. And I probably have given you the hump. <laughs> if you keep doing your can Dick I Van Dyke. Can I say that? Yes, I... you can. You can say that your, for example, your constant attempts to do a Dick Van Dyke Mary Poppins accent is giving me the hump. That is. I can't say I've given him the hump. Yes. JD, um, what does it mean to be chuffed to bits? Oh, I do know about this. I think I know about this because I think we've talked about this before. I think a person who's chuffed, well, I don't know about the bits, but I think a person who's chuffed is is like very happy about the thing. That they're very happy about the thing. Yes, to be chuffed to bits is to say that you are you are best pleased. Quite, quite with happy. a thing or a situation. Yes. Well yeah, done. like kind of how you are with this game. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see how it turns out. Um, all right. What is a butcher's, or in its full Cockney rhyming slam form, a butcher's hook? Butcher's hook. Now, Cockney rhyming slang, the way that it works is that, uh, I'm not sure if you know this, Ed, but the way that it works is that, because you're not, you're, you're not from that, I mean, you're not from that England. You're from a decidedly more genteel England than, uh, than you know, Cockney England. I, I, no, I went to a, a certain kind of school, you're correct. However, most of my... Formative university years were spent drinking in the East End. Oh, sure. All my best friends are East Enders. What kind of um, part of speech is it? Uh, it is a noun. Okay. Uh, so one might say, I've got a butcher's. No, you, you more likely invite someone to have a butcher's. Have a butcher's. Yes. Okay. So it's probably not crook. Nope. Probably not book because one would say, I've got a book, but one would not say. Well, here's the funny thing. Cognitive Rhymeslam often does this. It will, it will take a noun and turn it into a verb. Okay. So I might invite you to take a butcher's. Look, take a look. Yes, well done. Well done. <laughs> a butcher's hook. Look. Well done. Very jammy. Yes. You did rather luck into that one, but Man, I'm pleased I, for you. I can't wait till... Uh, um, I, I don't know what the occasion is, but we should go to England sometime and you should introduce me to your English friends so I can use a lot of this. Uh, I... I bet they're all named Nigel, aren't they? Every last one of them. I don't think hey, I've ever... Nige. I've ever met anyone named Nigel. Oh, are you kidding me? Every single person on a BBC television show is named Nigel. Or uh, Alistair. <laughs> I actually, I went to school with a disproportionate number of people named Alistair. That is true. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly You weren't meeting Alistairs on the East End. I'll tell you that right no, now. No, I went to school with three or four Alistairs, and I haven't met a single one since. So are there class denominations? Is Alistair an upper class name? No, I think it was just fashionable at the time. I don't know. Is Nigel a, a working class name? I, I think it could be. I, again, I don't know Nigel anyone. Farage? I don't know anyone named Nigel, so I, I would be hard-pressed to, to assign it significance. Okay. Um, JD, what is a wobbly? A wobbly? Is it Cockney rhyming slang? Nope. No, this is just a, a straightforward um, idiomatic term. Is it a sausage? No. Uh, I'll give you a little more context. You, you might often be accused, not you personally, but a person might might be said to be having a wobbly. This is a family podcast. <laughs> You're strange. <laughs> uh, I don't know, Ed. What is a wobbly? It's a tantrum, JD. A tantrum, I see. It is specifically a sort of when an, when an adult behaves in, a, in an emotional and petulant manner. Oh, a tantrum. I yes. Uh, but it's usually, I mean, children can be said to be having a wobbly, but normally you'd be referring to a person in a dismissive way as, you know, behaving. Are like, you having a wobbly? Yeah. Mm-hmm. More often you would say of someone, oh, they're off having a wobbly, ignore them. Uh, things like that. Very good. Um, all right. Well, do you want to keep going? You, well, Did you ever have a weeble? I'm not familiar with that. They wobble, but they don't fall down. Okay. Um, they're, they're toys that oh, we have that? here in America. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, JD, could you define... <laughs> I'm going to enjoy this one. Um, JD, could you define the term minging 
for me. Meaning? Minging. M-I-N-G-I-N-G. Minging. It's an, it's another uh, one of those weird inversions where technically speaking, you would constri- you, you would conjugate it as a verb, um, but it's actually more properly just applied as, an, as a straight adjective. Oh, like freaking or... Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, Yao Ming was... Um, he was a basketball player. This has nothing to do with him. And Yao Ming was a much vaunted basketball player. Again, this who, has nothing to do with Yao Ming or basketball. Who was... Who was arrival in the National Basketball Association was widely anticipated and who was set to transform basketball in a variety of ways and who, despite having some moments, never lived up to expectations. So I think a minging thing is something which is disappointing. That's a kind of disappointing. And I wish, again, to stress, this has nothing to do with Yao Ming. Are you certain? Yes. Um, How do you it, know? It in, fact means, uh, it, in fact, means to describe someone as being ugly. Oh, if you describe someone as as minging or being a minger, you would you I would think be, Yao Ming was fine. What is the etymology? Yeah, it doesn't have to have etymology, JD. These things every can, word has etymology. No, that's not true. A lot of slang that means terms. Where does the word come from? Yes, I know what they it arise means. Yes, it can be a spot. You of all people who are constantly promoting the, the silly um, slang is not glossolia. Look, you of all people who sometimes like glossolia to is try also not. Yes, totally I know what words mean. mean. This is. You are constantly trying to get me to watch that ridiculous film Mean Girls, where I understand, at least as I've understood the bits of it that you quote to me, that they sometimes like try and create slang words out of thin air. Isn't that I don't part think of I've the whole? I've encouraged you to watch Mean Girls in my entire life. Yeah, because you keep trying to make me wear pink on Wednesdays and things. We used to have a colleague who did that. I'm certain that I've never mentioned that to you. I think you have. Okay. Anyway, and lastly, beloved JD. colleague, beloved colleague, um, and lastly, JD, what is it to skive? Oh, okay. If being broke is to, to be skint, mm-hmm. then perhaps skive is to take something that doesn't belong to you, like take the person's money and therefore they're skint. I got, I, I skived him and now he's skint. Uh, no, that's that, that's a very playful attempt at conjugation there, but it's not true. No, to skive, uh, skiving is, is um, shirking. Oh, to shirk. Yes, to, specifically to skive is not to turn up at an appointed time for one's work. He skived on the appointment. Well, you wouldn't say he skived on the appointment. You would, you, someone who just doesn't turn up for work on a Monday, for example, uh, and has because they're... Hey, Nigel, why'd you skive on us? We were supposed to go round to the pub. Yes. Uh, well, no, usually you'd, you'd end up skiving to go to the pub, usually, is what happens. Um, Unless you work in a pub. <laughs> I suppose that's true. Hey, Alistair, why don't we skive off and... Yes, yeah, skiving off. The... Yeah, no, that's that's excellent usage. Well done. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, that was great, Ed. Thank you for, I feel like, thank you for introducing me to your culture. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Next time we'll do, uh, we'll maybe we'll think about doing American slang for you. I would, I would, I promise not to prepare for that at all. <laughs> but you have an unfair advantage, and I'll tell you why. Because um, as an English person, I suspect you grew up uh, watching a lot of American television and wanting to come, like thinking to yourself, like someday I'll sail out of Bristol and land in New York and make a new life for myself. You know, you just wanted to go to New York or Hollywood, California, and be an. Why be have a, I become very camp in this imagining of you? <laughs> because you're just sitting in your in your fancy school watching Dudley or something. What? In. 
imagining that you're going to come to America. Like maybe you watch City Slickers. You're like, someday I'll be a cowboy in the Wild West. I, I want to go to America. So you, you have uh, like all, like all people who are not in America. I presume you have spent a lot of time learning a, about American slang. So you'll be at an, a, 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 an advantage. But um, you know what I might do instead? I might, we might play a little game next week called Vatican slang. And the way that that will work is that I will take jargon from the Vadi Mekum. And uh, uh, I will challenge you to explain to me whether it has any meaning in concrete reality or not. I, uh, <laughs> I will thoroughly enjoy that. But, but in the meantime, Ed, I hope that you have a great week. I hope that you continue your existential uh, preparation for fatherhood. And dear listeners, I hope that you have a great week as well. And if you would like to take time to pray for Ed and as they prepare for the arrival of their baby. I'm sure that Ed would appreciate that. And if you would like to do anything else that you think might assuage Ed's anxiety ahead of uh, the birth of their baby, I'm sure that they would appreciate that as well. Uh, Ed, have a week. (laughs) Enjoy your weekend, J.D. Okay, The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and J.D. Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, Ed the Skint Skyver himself, Condon. (laughs) 